You're listening to the Echo Community Church Podcast. We have a passion for being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we hope this podcast inspires you to take another step. Let's join our pastor for today's teaching from the Bible. Do you like stories? I love stories. I love, I love good stories. Um, my sons love stories too. And, and uh, stories sometimes get a bad rap. Because, you know, people who tell tall tales or tell stories, we think, well, if it's a story, it must not be true. No, there are such a thing as true stories. You'll never see them on Lifetime or Hallmark, but you'll see them on other, uh, you'll see them in other movies like, you know, the Marvel series. And th- those things actually happened. You know, all those types of things were real. They're nonfiction. They really, <laughs> having a little fun, just making sure, just making sure y'all are with me this morning. I know you're up a little earlier than usual on Sunday, but I'm making sure y'all are with me. Um, we like stories. Human beings like stories. Every culture loves stories. It's just a way that you remember things. It's a way that grabs your attention. And uh, some of us don't get excited if someone says, listen, can you sit down for a second? I have some details I want to give you. Except for me, I'm a, a nerd and I like details. I'm like, yeah, bring on the details. It's different if someone says, hey, I got a story. And you're like, okay, tell me, tell me a story. I, I learned this weekend how much my, at least my youngest, loves stories a couple times throughout the year uh, we schedule for Kendra to have just some mom time where she can just usually it involves her going to a hotel about 30 minutes away for for a day or two and just sleeping and reading and relaxing and recharging she recharges in in solitude and so uh you know the boys you know between her work her professional work and the work of being a mom and the work of being a wife and just all the expectations you get drained so she goes away, and I usually try and plan my taking a vacation day around that so that I can fully focus on having Chase, um, making sure he's doing virtual school the way that he's supposed to, and that the four-year-old doesn't burn down the house. Those are generally my responsibilities. And I, I excel in daytime. I excel in the afternoon. I can handle all of the responsibilities. However, it's a very different thing when the bedtime routine comes around when mom's not in the house. I have discovered this. My boys like their routine, and they like, they have their expectations. And when mom is not around during the bedtime routine, things start to go sideways. And uh, my nine-year-old this year demonstrated really good adaptability, and eventually, you know, got him calmed down and got him to sleep. Four-year-old decided, I'm not having this, and now it's time to protest. The four-year-old took his iPad, put it in his lap, crossed his legs, crisscrossed applesauce, folded his arms, and at nine o'clock looked at me and said, I'm not going to bed until mommy comes home. I was like, well, buddy, she ain't going to be home till 6 o'clock tomorrow evening, so something's going to give you. He's like, I'm just staying awake. And at first I'm thinking, I'll outlast him. <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning, he's still sitting there on his iPad watching the same video on repeat about the planets for the last five hours. Just, I mean, he's like, he's starting to nod off and he's shaking his head to keep himself awake. And finally, thank God, the iPad battery finally drank. And I'm like, buddy, you ready to call it a night? Are we going to turn in now? He gets down off of the bed, goes over the wall in the dark, plugs in his iPad and sets it up. I was like, get back in bed. No. What are you doing? I'm going to wait for it to charge the whole way to 100% from zero. Yeah, because I'm not going to bed until mommy gets home. I'm like, he, he and his, his mom both have this part of them. We're all, listen, Kendra and I are both very, very strong-willed. At some point, I will eventually back down when I feel like the battle is just, uh, I'll just fight another day. Kendra will keep pushing through 
and she, she'll stick to her guns. And the four-year-old is just like that. He's like, no, if, we're, if this is going to be who blinks first, you're going to blink. I'm not. <laughs> the final was like, Isaiah, this is, I, I, this is enough. Is there anything, you know, this is not good parenting, but this is what I did. Um, finally, I just, I gave, I was trying to, nego- you know, I, I tried to hold the line unsuccessful. Tried to negotiate, failed. He won. I was finally, I just resorted to begging. <laughs> is there anything I can do? to get you into the bed and go to sleep. <sighs> well, I guess I can change my mind, he says. Okay, you, I'll get in the bed, but you have to tell me a story. I'm like, okay, we're making progress. We're up in the bed. He sits down, crisscross applesauce, but I'm not going to sleep. I'm like, no, no, I'm not telling you a story unless you lay down. So he lays down. I want you to tell me the story, the story, indicating that this is a story exists that I'm familiar with. You know, the story about about how Superman and Oscar the Grouch go to Taco Bell. Oh yeah, classic, familiar, I have no idea. I'm like, I better come up with this really fast. And so he's like, oh, and you can rub my back while you tell the story. I'm like, oh, thank you for the privilege of, I know you're all thinking, you weak man, at 2.15, you just say, I'll fight this another day. So I start the story. I don't remember what the plot was. And then he's like, no, that's not the right voice. Gosh, okay. Come up with a Superman voice. I'm rubbing his back. I don't remember what the story was, but about four minutes in, he was asleep. And he slept until the crack of 620. And then he sat up and he was ready to go. Because mom wasn't home yet. And so I realized that, you know, maybe my gift in telling stories is my stories put people to sleep. And so this morning... It's going to tell a story. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he loves stories. We love stories. And even though stories get a little bit of a bad reputation sometimes because we think they're not true, you know, there are such a thing as true stories, stories that just follow the facts, and we learn by stories. And I don't want you to forget that the Bible, among all the different things that it is, the Bible is itself a story. It does not start off with science. It does not start off with a bunch of detail and explanations. It starts off with a story, and it continues. In the Bible, though it has 66 individual books, and through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, comes through the prism and the lens of lots of different men and women, it tells one unified story from the beginning to the end. It tells us about who God is, tells us where we came from, why we're here, what went completely wrong, and what God has done about it. That's what the Bible tells us. It tells us the whole story. And it begins in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book, and it doesn't resolve completely until the last verse of the last chapter of the last book. And the beautiful thing about the arc of this story is that it begins and ends. It's bookended with kind of the same thing, and everything was good and perfect. So that's the story. And you and I like stories, and we remember stories pretty easily. Now, I can remember some facts and details a little less reliably the older that I get. But I remember a good story. And I don't want you to be offended when I say that the Bible doesn't just contain stories. It is a story. And I think it's beautiful that it's a story because it means it's easy to remember. It's easy to relate to. It's easy to identify. It captures our interest And if you understand the gospel as a story, 
your, your depth of understanding will increase and your ability to communicate it and tell the gospel story will become more organic and natural. People love stories. And if I'm going to send you out of here every week and send you into your high school or your middle school or your job or your neighborhood or into your family and say, I want you to look for ways to talk to people about God, the gospel, the Bible. I want you to find ways to talk to people about it. Wouldn't it be better to prepare yourself to share it in a way people are going to be enthusiastic to hear? Man, have I got a story to tell. So today, really, the big idea, I want to just, some of you know this story. I want to reintroduce you to the gospel as a story. The big idea I want to build off of today is that a story is simply a means. It's a way. It's a method of structuring information to increase learning and meaning. That's what stories are for. When I was a little kid, we, used to, I, we had a book club, and I loved once a month that in the little mailbox, we'd get three little books. They'd be wrapped together. And one of my favorites was, was, a, was a kid's version of Aesop's fables. Have any of you, have any of you ever read any of the fables? Um, I love those stories. They were memorable, taught a lot of life lessons. My granddad, a lot of the lessons that he would teach our life came through illustrations and stories. And uh, when we get together as a family, we love to tell stories. Um, of course, most of our stories over the years have veered away from facts and they've kind of taken on a life of their own. And that's kind of the dangerous side of stories. Even though stories and storytelling sometimes get a bad reputation for, accurate, for historical accuracy. I want you to understand you can trust the gospel and that presenting the gospel from our Bibles as a story can be a powerful tool in our spiritual conversation. So a little bit different approach today. Most of you are thinking, well, Pastor, what I like about Echo's solid teaching is that every week you're going to start with a Bible verse we're going to dig into that Bible verse, figure out, you know, what, what does it mean? What, did it, what was it saying to the people who heard it first? What does it mean to us today? Why are you getting away from that? I'm not. It's just today I'm going to tell you the whole Bible. Now, we're not going to be here until tomorrow. It's going to be okay. But really, this story covers Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse of Revelation. And by understanding the structure of the whole story, wherever you are in your Bible reading, I'm in, I just finished Leviticus. Thank God I finished Leviticus. <laughs> and my reward for that is numbers. So, you know, um, but it helps me understand when I know where the story is, and this is in what I call scene two of the Bible. Well, actually, no, this is, this is more like scene three where numbers is. It's in scene three. Now I understand where it fits into the overall picture, that this was one of the ways that God was trying to help Israel put the kingdom back together again. And he had to redefine the boundaries of his kingdom because Adam messed up. And now God says, okay, through Abraham, I'm going to use you. And you're going to be the arrow that points the world to me. And you're going to be able, through your obedience, through your faithfulness, now I understand why he had all these things in Leviticus and Numbers because they needed to know where the boundaries were. Uh, it helps put those things together. So, so let's look at the gospel story. It's actually like um, I used to, I haven't done this in years, but uh, back before we had kids, one of my favorite things to do was go to New York City and take in a show and saw Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis, Diary of Anne Frank, and some other stories on, on Broadway. And you get a little playbill on your way in, and it tells you how doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you everything that's coming, but it gives you the structure. It's these acts, these scenes. Some of them have something called an intermission where you can go out, go to the bathroom, get a snack, and then they flash the lights, let you know it's time to come back in. We're going to start up with the second scene. The Bible, there's different ways you can organize it. There's not just one way you can tell the Bible story accurately. But I like a structure, and the Bible is basically two acts or two parts, and each one has three scenes 
each. And an easy way of remembering it is, you know, part one is the bad news. Part two is the good news. Now, how many of you have ever had someone come up to you and say, I've got good news and I got bad news. Which do you want first? How many of you are like, give me the good news first? Okay. One of you. Okay. The rest of us, how many, bad news? You want the bad news first? I, I'm, I'm that person. I, I just, I want to, let's get the bad news out of the way so I have something to look forward to after you get done telling me the bad news. Um, the Bible gives you the bad news first, and then it gives you the good news. And um, to help you remember this, we've, we're going to put some images up on the screen, and I'll put them up here too. Act one of the bad news, scene one, got a little castle here. That represents a kingdom because in scene one, in Genesis 1-1, all we see is God. God's all that there is. It's God. And the Bible introduces God to us as a king. We see God is not just a king. God is the king. It's one of the ways that the Bible helps us understand a bit about who God is. And what do we call a king's territory? We call it their kingdom. And so what does God, the king, do? In the very beginning of the gospel story, he creates. He creates the universe. He creates galaxies. He creates stars and systems. He creates planets. He even creates the very world that you and I live in. This is his kingdom. And his purpose in all that is to show his glory. And inside his kingdom, God creates a garden, right? Have you heard about any ancient gardens that other kings made? Kings were just about making gardens for some reason. You think about, you know, the hanging gardens and other things that were, that were, you know, that were popular in that time of history. Well, even before the first king made a garden, the king makes a garden. And it's perfect. And he creates and he creates and he creates. But ultimately, his crowning achievement on the sixth day is he creates mankind. He creates man. He creates woman. And the Bible says that there was a blueprint for his design. And the blueprint, he said, I'm going to make little images. Actually, he says, of us. He's speaking to, we're hearing the triune God speak about, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a three-in-oneness to us. There's going to have a three-in-oneness to man and woman. They're going to have a body, a soul, and a spirit, just like our Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's a three-in-oneness to these little images. And, and God made these little images as the king. He's like, I'm going to populate my kingdom with little images of me to show forth my glory, to make it very clear whose kingdom this is. And later on, kings in the ancient world picked up on this. And if you study archaeology and you study history, you'll see lots of ancient kings or empires as they rose. You know how they define their territory? In every town and every city, there were statues of the king. There were images of the king everywhere on their money, on their coins, in busts or full-size statues all over the kingdom. They put the image of the king. It was just a concept that earthly kings came up to to say, this is how we're going to remind people whose kingdom this is. God started all that. The king designed to fill the earth with little echoes of who he is. And he, he looks at mankind, and that's who we are. We're the men and the women. We're the people. And he gave them an assignment in his kingdom, and their assignment was to rule and to reign and to subdue creation. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, so the king made people to be other kings just like him? Not his equal. He's the capital K king. But he said, I'm going to make humankind. I will reign over them and I will give them authority to rule and reign and govern 
my creation. And the important thing to see is in scene one of the story of the gospel, everything is good and everything is perfect. I mean, Adam and Eve are running around naked and unafraid, which is completely the opposite of when Discovery Channel got a hold of that story, right? Everything was good and perfect. There was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no labor. There was no disease. There was no crime. There was no bickering or arguing between husband and wife. It was good and it was perfect. And those of you that know this story, how long into the story did that last? Like a page and a half? <laughs> yeah, Genesis, scene one is really Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 3. The end of chapter 2 and like verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. Because just like any captivating story, there's tension, there's surprise, there's conflict. And scene 2 of the story, we see that rebellion enters God's kingdom. So we chose, you know, they decided to try and burn down God's kingdom. And what do we mean by that? In scene 1, everything's good and perfect. And in scene 1, there's absolutely no opposition to God's kingdom. Every citizen in God's kingdom in scene one is obeying the king, is trusting the king, is enjoying everything that's good and perfect, is living in close relationship with the king. But now in scene two, we see rebellion in the form of the devil comes, the leader of a rival kingdom enters the scene. And the citizens of God's kingdom choose to pledge their loyalty and allegiance to another kingdom and turn against God's kingdom. Adam and Eve say, you know what? The best choice for us to make is we would prefer autonomy over being in a kingdom. We want to make our own decisions. If we stay in this kingdom, there's too many rules. How many rules were there really? <laughs> Not too many. But the devil came along and said, you know, did God really say that? Can you really trust him? He's not really out for your best. He doesn't want you to be fully optimized. Make your own choice. Make your own path. You don't need God to tell you what to do. You make your own choice, and then you'll really have power. Then your eyes will really be opened. And boy, did sin overpromise and underdeliver. And Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God's kingdom. And they chose to pledge their allegiance to an opposing kingdom. And now things aren't good anymore. And now things aren't perfect. And now God has to react and respond to this because this was not his plan for his kingdom. So we learn a few things about God's kingdom that weren't revealed in scene one. We learn first and foremost that anytime somebody rebels in God's kingdom, something or someone has to die every time. Second thing we see is that God decides to curse his creation in response to the rebellion of the citizens of his kingdom. He puts a curse on creation. And the result of that curse is that now there are certain things unleashed in this world that were never part of God's perfect plan for his garden and his kingdom. Things like death. Up to this point, there was no death. People didn't die. People didn't get sick. People didn't age. People's bodies didn't break down. 
There wasn't disease. There wasn't COVID. There wasn't cancer. But now there is. Now there's death. There's disease. There's other things too. There's now conflicts between people. The first thing that husband and wife do when they pledge their allegiance is they start blame shifting, throwing each other under the bus, disagreeing, arguing, bickering. Adam steps back out of the picture, keeps his mouth shut when he should have spoken up. Eve steps into the vacuum and a mess. Ruined its relationship with God. It ruined the relationship with each other. Ruined the relationship with creation. Part of the curse was it ruined the relationship we have with ourselves. Up to this point, Adam and Eve didn't know what shame was. They didn't know what guilt was. And now they live with shame and guilt. There's sickness, there's disease, there's demonic powers at work. All kinds of things. God curses his creation because of rebellion in his kingdom. And listen, we got to push back from the story just enough to say this. If you were God, and I realize that's a dangerous game we shouldn't play, but if we were, and you, out of the kindness of your heart, say, I don't have to do this, but I want to do this, I'm going to create a kingdom. He had a kingdom. I'm going to create a way to display my kingdom. I'm going to create universal galaxies. I'm going to create a world, and I'm going to give life to men and women. They can't give it to themselves. I will give them life. I will create a good and perfect place for them. I will create boundaries so they know how to live inside that good and perfect place. And why would they, if they love the garden, why would they ever want to stray outside of it? And yet, in spite of all of that generosity and all that love, creation that he made chose to opt out of the relationship. Most of us would just be so frustrated with that that we'd make like a lump of Play-Doh on the table that didn't turn out the way you want. And we'd just mash that thing, destroy it, and be done with it. And say, this was an experiment gone wrong. We either start over or we just move on. That would have probably been the easiest thing. That's not what God does here, though, which is really interesting. Why didn't God just wipe everything out at that point when it just went so horribly wrong with the first two images he put here on the earth? But instead of that, at the end of really Genesis chapter 3 and moving forward through uh, the re most of the rest of the book of Genesis, we get the next scene. We get scene 3. God sends redemption. Redemption begins. God says, you know what? I'm not going to give up on humans. I'm not going to give up on men and women. Instead, I'm going to send a rescue team. I'm going to send a rescue team into the world, and this rescue team is going to help put the kingdom back together again. So the rescue team, the plan that God puts in place now, God strikes up a conversation with a man he chose by the name of Abraham. And God says, hey, Abraham, listen, I am going to redeem the entire world through you and your descendants and your family. Adam has failed but I'm going to try again with you. Adam was disobedient. Adam didn't follow the plan. Adam did his own thing. Adam turned on me. Adam stopped worshiping me. Adam didn't trust me, and he failed. But Abraham, through you and your family, through your obedience, through your faithfulness, through your worship, through your trust, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use you now and your descendants to be a light to a dark world. 
I'm going to use you as the arrows that point a lost world's attention to me. I'm going to send you as the rescue team to save drowning humanity from their sins. And we'll put Eden back together again. And we'll put my kingdom back together again. And we'll get everybody to live inside the fence. That's what we're going to do to redeem the world. He had a plan through Abraham and through Israel. It was a good plan. There was a major problem, though, not with the plan, but in how it executed. You know what the problem was? Israel completely failed, too. They failed. And scene three pretty much starts after Adam and Eve are out of the scene and after Noah's family is preserved through the flood and the world begins to populate again. We see scene three unfolding and it goes through the end of the Old Testament. And you know what we were supposed to read? The way the story was supposed to play out? Here's how Israel was faithful to God, worshiped him only, honored God. And by their lives, they, 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 by their lives and their faithfulness to God, God used them as a light to show the whole world the pathway back into the kingdom of God. They were supposed to be the image of God to the rest of the world. But instead, they became an image of the rest of the world projected to God. With every test that Israel had, they failed. You know, it got so bad at one point. Israel was so disobedient that God says, I'm not sending you into the promised land right now. You're going into a 40-year timeout into the wilderness. And during this time, we're going to reconnect in our relationship. We're going to get things put back together again so that when you move into Israel, we can get this right. The Old Testament was supposed to be about the rescue team pulling drowning humanity into the boat and leading them back to God. Instead, what you'll read in the Old Testament, it's about how the rescue team that God sent to save drowning humanity themselves got lost at sea, and now we've got to send another team to rescue the rescue team. That's what happens in the Old Testament. And God tried time and time again to raise up people or send people to try and rescue Israel from themselves to get them back on track so that they could be the light, the image, the echo of God they were supposed to be. He uses judges like Deborah and Samson and Samuel. He tried to use kings like David and Solomon. He tried to use prophets. And none of those things worked. And if they did work, it was only temporary. The people would feel bad for a little while. They'd come back and say they're sorry. God would forgive. He'd restore. And then days, weeks, or even years later, they'd go right back to where they were again. And before we're too hard on them, isn't that more like our story? At one point, God sends them into the wilderness. And they go into the wilderness, and it's supposed to be a time where they're drawing closer to the Lord, but it's anything but. They fail God repeatedly in the wilderness. First, God says, all right, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to send bread every day in the form of manna. But trust me, you don't have to go crazy. I know I'm going to put a free buffet out there, but you don't have to hog it all. Just get enough that you need for today, and tomorrow I'll send more. But like most of us, when they give free stuff away, we don't take just what we need. You put free stuff out there, and we just go crazy. Free T-shirts? I'll take 11. There's one of you. You don't need 11. No, it's free, right? We can't control ourselves with free. You put a bin of napkins out at Dunkin' Donuts. Some of y'all are like stocking your kitchen for the next year, right? It's like, I'm not just going to take one. They're free. I'm going to take 11 napkins. I'll use two and throw the other nine away. We still do this. Israel did the same thing. They didn't trust God. 
I'm like, I, I've been down this road before. That's food. That's free food. So what do they do? The manna gets laid out, and they take way too much. They take more than what they need. And the next day they get up, and it's all the extra that they tried to keep spoiled because they trusted bread and not God. And that wasn't the end of their failures in the wilderness. They're supposed to practice monotheism, worshiping the one true God. Man, you can read through the Old Testament. They picked up polytheism. They worshiped. They had almost every possible idol, every demonic statue and satanic idea in the world you could worship, they were into it. Now they'd mix it together. Basically, they said, we'll take a little bit of what the world has and a little bit of what God has. We'll mix it together. We'll customize our religion. And you're thinking, oh, I can't believe they did that. Don't we do the same thing? Don't you pick and choose the things about God's kingdom you like and the things you don't agree with? You find a way to write it off to customize your own religion? It's not how a kingdom works. The citizens don't decide the kingdomship. The king does. But they did the same thing. And they bowed down to every other idol. And they didn't worship the one true God. It was, it was such a mess. For 40 years in the wilderness, God says, trust me, trust me, trust me. You know what Israel said? We test you, we test you, we test you. Let's test your patience. Let's test your faithfulness. Let's test your trustworthiness. Let's test it all. And that cycle continues throughout the Old Testament. And you get to this place between the Old Testament and the New Testament where in your Bible, if you have the Gospel of Matthew there, usually there's like a page in between. My Bible, it's a blank page, and then the next page says the New Testament. Because you see, scene three is about as bad as bad can get. God creates a kingdom for his glory. He puts men and women in here, and he says, I want you to just, let's just enjoy one another. That's all he's ever wanted. Let's enjoy one another in an environment that's all good and all perfect. That sounds fantastic to me. And if it doesn't to you, something is broken and wrong. In an environment where he takes all the pressure and we don't have anything. You just run around. Name animals. Make them do what you want them to do. You don't have to worry about fashion or wealth or income or competition. Just enjoy it. It's all perfect. I said, ah. And things go sideways from there. So Adam fails. There's new hope. Let's send Israel. Israel fails. So as we turn from scene three to scene four, it's almost like God is the first being who ever came to this conclusion. If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So in scene four, in the beginning of the New Testament, we meet Jesus the king. And it's almost like God is saying, you know what? We're going to have to do this ourselves." And so we meet the second member of the triune trinity, Jesus the Son. And Jesus the Son accepts the assignment from God the Father. And we sung about this today. This is totally the second verse of the second song that we sang. He leaves heaven and he comes to earth. He's fully divine and now he's also fully human. And he comes to earth. And he starts doing the opposite of what Adam did. And he starts doing the opposite of what Israel did. He is completely, totally, authentically obedient. 
to God. He keeps God's commandments perfectly. And he starts preaching to people when he gets into his 30s. And he starts preaching on, like his main topic is the topic of the kingdom of God. Now that should sound familiar. If you've been reading the story, you're thinking, well, yeah, we, we, this is kind of the theme. This is the thing they forgot about. This is what God, God started off the beginning of the story by being a king who created a kingdom. And Jesus comes back and says, hey, everybody listen. God's really the king. He hasn't forgotten. He's the king of a kingdom. And that kingdom is here. And it's now. But it's, there's problems. And we need to fix them. God wants, God wants to get the kingdom back together again. God wants to get us back to Eden again. God wants to bring us back into being citizens of his kingdom again. The time is here. The time is now. And this is what Jesus' message is. And Romans and other parts of the New Testament call Jesus, they give him a couple nicknames. They call him the second Adam. Other people call him the anti-Adam. Because he took on all of, if you start, if you know this story, and Jesus comes along the scene, it's going to be familiar. It's almost like a little bit of a flashback. Because you start seeing Jesus get some of the same tests that Adam had. Adam goes into a garden, and he's tested. And he says, at the end of the day, Adam says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh, not your will, God, my will be done. And he fails the test, and as a result, the curse of death comes into the world. Jesus comes along, and right about the time the end of his assignment is done, he goes into a garden, he prays. It's just a few hours before he knows his assignment is to go to the cross and die. And he goes to God and says, you know, God, if it's possible... Let this assignment pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And he goes into a garden and he passes the death, the test, and he reverses the curse of death. You're saying reverse the curse. Oh, yeah, in this part of the story, Jesus goes around reversing the curse. Think back to the first part of the story, scene two. What were some of the curses? Well, death was one. Well, what does Jesus do when he shows up? He starts bringing dead people back to life. And then he himself is killed. But the Spirit of God raises him up from the dead. And he defeats and reverses the curse of death. There is a curse of sickness. And yet Jesus shows up, and what does he do? He goes around defeating sickness, healing sickness, healing sick people. There is a curse of allowing the, the enemy to have some authority and some rule on the earth to use demonic forces to oppress people and possess people and destroy. And what does Jesus do? He goes around liberating people who are possessed by evil spirits and setting them free. And you'll see systematically, time over time, curse over curse, Jesus' life was about demonstrating that he had power and he alone had power to reverse the curse on creation. He was the anti-Adam. Everything Adam was supposed to do and failed, Jesus takes on and succeeds. Not only that, he also decided to take on everything Israel had to take on. Remember Israel got sent into the wilderness for a 40-year timeout? Remember that back from scene three? Well, Jesus didn't have to go to timeout. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. And when Israel went in the wilderness, the first thing they do is say, we don't trust God, we trust bread. And the first test Jesus faces in the wilderness, he says, I don't trust bread, I trust God. When Israel goes into the wilderness, 
They say, we'll bow down to every other nation if it will deliver to us what we think we want. And Jesus' second test in the wilderness, he says to Satan, I will not bow down to you. I will worship the one and true God. Passes that test. And the very last thing we see in Israel's time in the wilderness is that at the end of the day, all they did for 40 years is test God, test God, test God, test God, rather than trust God. And what Jesus does in his last test with Satan in the wilderness, he says, I'm not putting the Lord our God to the test. I trust him. He faced every single test that Israel did, even in the same location that they did, but Jesus succeeds where they failed. Jesus embodied so many things about Israel. They had 12 tribes. He takes on 12 apostles. They worshiped in a temple where God's presence was, and Jesus comes and says, I am the temple of the Lord God. So many things. And what do we see here? We see in every single point of his life, Jesus absolutely lived the life Adam should have lived. But Adam failed and Jesus succeeded. Jesus absolutely lived the life Israel should have lived, but they failed and he succeeded. Jesus absolutely lived the life you and I should have lived, but we've failed and he succeeded. Scene four, we meet Jesus the king. But as the, the sands of the hourglass start to end and dissolve, as Jesus' assignment on earth clicks to an end, there's still a big problem here. We learned back in scene two that any time somebody rebels against God and his kingdom, and every time somebody rebels against God's kingdom, what happens? Somebody or something must die. And up to this point in Jesus' life, he still has not resolved that. You see, God, the king, he's a just God. You know what that means? People get what they deserve without exception. And God says, in my kingdom, the principle is this. Obey and you will live, rebel and you will die. And for God to make exceptions and to go back on that means he's not just. means he's inconsistent. God... God's not going to be inconsistent. Regardless of how good of a life Jesus lived, that has no impact on you or me. Because we haven't lived that life. You know what we deserve? Death. Mankind is still under the just, appropriate condemnation of God in scene four. Our neck is still on the chopping block. And Jesus realizes this. And so, in one of the final scenes of scene four, Jesus does something unthinkable. He pushes your neck and my neck off of the chopping block. And he lays himself down in our place as our substitute. And he gives himself over to human beings. And Paul describes it this way, or Peter describes it this way in the book of Acts in one of his sermons that he preaches. He says, it pleased, God, it pleased the sovereign God through the acts of sinful men for Jesus to be put to death on the cross. You know what that meant? God was both sovereign and there was free will in place, both at the same time, somehow working in conjunction along one another side by side that resulted in Jesus' death on the cross. His death, though, is different from what our death would be. If I died for my sins, I'm offering up a flawed, broken, sin-filled, rebellious life. And that one death that I could give God is not enough to pay off all of my sins. I could pay off one sin. I've committed way more than that, and so have you. 
Jesus dies in scene four, but he dies not for his own sins because he had none. He dies instead for all of our sins. And the ultimate scene in scene four is when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. God brings him back to life. And in so doing, he's showing us the curse of sin is finally broken. The curse of death is ultimately broken. And I'm proving it to you by giving you a receipt of your purchase. And the receipt of the purchase is that Jesus came back to life. And he says, now those of you who put your faith and trust in me can follow me. And you, your uh, spiritual body will die and you'll be resurrected in a new life through Christ. You will follow me in this. We see ultimately Jesus ultimately lived the life we should have lived. We see in scene four, he ultimately died the death we all deserve to die. But he ultimately was raised again to life so that you and I can be accepted by God based on Jesus's resume, not our own. And you're saying, well, how does that work? Because I told you God's a just God. What does that have to do with anything? God says you must, being just means you must pay exactly what you deserve for your sins. No more and no less. That's being just. To demand more than what is fair and more than what is right is being unjust. And to demand less is being unjust. I'm still not getting it. Well, let me help you. Jesus already paid what you justly deserve. For you to come to God and for God to demand from you that you pay for your sins when you're accept, he's the that would be God demanding more than what you owe him. You have the choice to say, I'll accept the payment that's already been made on my behalf. Please apply it to my account. God's not going to demand you pay on top of what Jesus already paid. You see, God the Father punished Jesus the Son in order that you and I could be forgiven and God could remain just. You still deserve punishment, and I still deserve punishment for my sin. The good news is that Jesus paid it already. It doesn't mean my sin goes unpunished. It means my sin has been previously punished and satisfied in full. That's really good news. And you say, that's not fair. Do you want it to be fair? I don't. I'll take unfair. Because in this case, I'm not getting what I deserve at all. And Jesus got what he didn't deserve at all. But he took what he didn't deserve. So he could give me what I don't deserve. And so that God could remain just. My sins are still punished and paid for, but not by me, by Jesus, the only one who could do it. And that takes us right up to Acts chapter 1, and you see the last, the last two scenes. You see scene 5? Because Jesus is now, he came the first time to bring salvation and forgiveness. His work is done. And he just looks at everybody else and says, listen, I've done my part. Now you all go tell everybody. It's done. Tell everybody, the kingdom's open again. We're taking citizens in again. And you can't buy your way in. You can't bribe your way in. You can't sneak your way in. You get in by grace and mercy. You get in by two things, repentance and simple faith in me, King Jesus. That's how you get in. And he turns this over to the eyewitnesses. He turns this over to the apostles. And he says, go tell everybody the good news. Go tell everybody. Tell everybody you can join God's kingdom. Tell everybody you can be part of this again. There is forgiveness available to you. There is citizenship available to you. And the formula he gives is repentance plus simple faith equals forgiveness plus citizenship. We bring repentance. 
We bring our simple faith in Jesus. God receives that and exchanges that for forgiveness from our sins. We become citizens of God's kingdom. And you start to see this explode off the pages of the story. In Acts chapter 2, you see the gospel take hold of people's lives. And the call to join God's kingdom starts in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Good Friday on the day of Pentecost. And very soon over those next few pages, it starts spreading throughout the city. It starts spreading throughout the nation of Israel. It starts going to the east, through the Middle East, and into, and into the, the, the eastern Asian countries. It goes south into Africa. It goes west across southern Europe. It goes north into northern Europe. By the end of the New Testament, we get whispers that it's making its way as far west as Spain. And then as you keep following history, this thing is still going around. It made its way over to England at one point, and from there to the United States to where I live today. You know, to this day, there are still some pockets of isolated, unreached people groups in the world. And every month, you and I and this church sends money to fund missionaries who are risking their lives to go into places of the world where they still haven't heard the call to join God's kingdom, where they might not know the language, where they've never had someone come in. And we are still to this day making an effort to let every man, woman, and boy and girl on the face of the earth know there is a kingdom of God. You have the opportunity to go there. Every person deserves the right to say yes or no to King Jesus. Every person. And this story explodes off the page, and I believe we're still living in scene five. And that carries us through most of the rest of the New Testament. But then there's, the New Testament tells about a scene we haven't seen yet. We read about it in Thessalonians. We read about it in Revelation. It's even referred to in the Old Testament. You can see it referred to in Isaiah. You can see it referred to in the prophet of Daniel. It's kind of, it's such a beautiful story because you can find ingredients of almost all of these scenes embedded through the entire story. It's amazing. But the very last scene, scene six, Jesus returns to complete his work. I know you're thinking, but Jesus already came and his work's already done. Well, yes and no. He did already come one time. The first time he came for two reasons, to bring salvation and to provide for forgiveness. And he completed those things, done, checked it off the list, all done, went back to heaven. The Bible says he's coming back a second time. Why? Well, here's the reason why. Yes, he came to provide forgiveness. Yes, he came to provide salvation, and that work is done. He came to start reversing the curse, and even though he's told us in the story that ultimately all the curse and all death and all sin and all evil is going to be defeated, when we look around us in the reality of our world, don't we still see the curse operating in some ways? We still die. There's still sin. There's still evil. There's still crime. There's still rape. There's still hate. Broken relationships with one another. Broken relationship between people, between races. We still see it. But Jesus says, I'm coming a second time. And when I come a second time, this is scene six. There's no more grace and no more mercy. At this point, everything, everything that is evil, everything that is anti the kingdom, death, hell, Hades, Satan, demons, sickness, evil, curses, all of that stuff is going to be eradicated and thrown away for eternal destruction never to be seen again. And the Bible ends by showing us that and everything will be good and perfect again. Starts off with everything being good and perfect. It goes through all of this tension and drama and failure and success, and it ends with everything being good and perfect. It's such an awesome story. It's like a cyclical story. But it's not just imagination. This is the historical fact of the Bible in 30 minutes in two acts of the bad news and the good news. And in 
six scenes of God the king and later on of Jesus the king, of rebellion and failure and of victory and success, of the kingdom is closed, the, kingdom, the garden is closed, the kingdom is open, of redemption begins and redemption is complete. Do you see yourself in those different scenes? Have you lived some of scene two in your life where you decided, yeah, I'm going to do it my way. And then you have to deal with the reality of the guilt and the shame of those decisions. Have you lived any scene three of your life where God's done a new work in your life? You surrendered to him. You wanted to be on his team and you decided, I'm going to be part of this rescue effort to reach the world. And yet somewhere along the way, you got lost at sea and now God had to send someone after the rescue team. What about scene four? Have you had an experience that we sang about the happy day that Jesus washed your sins away? Where the reality of his life, his death, and his resurrection absolutely was a power that settled into your heart and you knew it was true and you yielded and you surrendered and you accepted and you, and you uh, uh, were issued forgiveness and you're welcome to God's kingdom and your just whole life was transformed and you're a new creature and now you have the best story to tell. You have your story to tell and you have his story to tell. We're living in scene five because we know scene six is coming. And the reality of scene six is that you get to choose which of the two locations in scene six you want to live because scene six is the final scene of the story and it's eternal. It goes on and on and on and on, and on to no end. The Bible says you have a choice to repent and to put your simple faith in Jesus or to not repent and to be autonomous and live life your own way. The end result of repent and forgive, of repent and putting your faith in Christ is forgiveness, citizenship in God's kingdom, which is eternal life. The end result of rejection of that is eternal separation from God, eternal death, separated from God in hell. That's not where we want to be. But you can't earn your way in. You can't perform your way in. Well, pastor, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm, I'm perfect. I, God will let me in. I'm, just, I, I, I'm a really good person. I do a lot of good things. Your resume is not good enough. Even if your resume was perfect, if you think your perfect resume will get you into heaven, your thinking is sinful. Because your thinking says, I reject the truth of the Bible that tells me my resume can't get me in. Your motives are flawed. It's all about you. Even if you could produce a perfect resume, it wouldn't really be perfect. It would still be stained with selfishness and mistrust. How arrogant to think that you're the exception to God's rule. You see, you can't earn your way in. The good news is there's grace and mercy that welcomes us in. Friends, this is the most powerful story that there is. It's the most powerful story. The most powerful story. And you and I have to welcome that story in our life. Yes, I've talked about the gospel a lot. Get used to it. If you stick around here, I'm going to talk about the gospel a lot. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is power. We're talking about the next week. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God. Stories, to me, more than just stories, can carry a power. And a powerful story is one that you live your life differently after hearing the story than before. You've heard powerful stories from human beings. Probably some of the choices you've made in your life are a result of hearing a story that you heard. You started or stopped doing something. You changed something about yourself. 
Sometimes you hear the story of how people's neglect of their body turned into the physical, physical ailment that cost them your life. And you say, I'm going to stop doing this now because I heard, I heard that powerful story. I want to tell you there is a power of the gospel unlike anything else. It will take you up. Well, I have not experienced the gospel that way. Then you've not experienced the gospel. You've heard some facts. You've heard some truth. But you've not experienced it until it wrestles your soul to the ground. And you look through your eyes and you see Jesus displayed. And you see yourself in the story. And you see Jesus in the story. And you see the precarious danger that we're in at the end of scene three. And then you see Jesus come onto the scene in scene four. And you think that's the only way I could ever have hope. And once you have hope, you'll live today differently because you're a hope-dependent creature. Whatever you think about your future controls what you think about your today. Jesus supplies hope that your future is certain and it's better in his kingdom. Let me pray over you. Team, why don't you come back? Those of you that know exactly what this moment is all about, I'm going to give people an invitation to come into God's kingdom. And if you've said yes to that and you're living in God's kingdom, don't check out on me and don't start ordering lunch on your app. I need you to pray. Listen, I'm, I'm out of my COVID cocoon for the most part, and I'm calling us like, come on, man, we got to pray. You can pray. And you pray over this moment because every single week I'm going to give an invitation for people to come into God's kingdom. The enemy does not want that to happen. And you know what you can do about it? You can join with me and pray. That the people who Jesus is drawing to himself right now will surrender to him in this moment. Friend, if you are ready to come into God's kingdom, I've given you the blueprint today. You don't earn your way in. You don't perform your way in. No matter how rebellious you've been throughout your entire life, because Jesus died and rose again, you can have forgiveness and citizenship in God's kingdom. Plain and simple. Do you want that? That's my question. Do you want that? You don't write the rules. It's God's terms. You got to come in to God's kingdom on God's terms. Not on yours. His terms are you got to be honest with yourself that you need saving. You need to truly believe in your heart that Jesus is not just an idea to hold on to. It's not just some fairy tale to hold on to to make you feel to make you sleep at night. That he really is who he said that he is. He really did what history tells us that he did. You have to believe that. Not just that he died, but that he rose. That's what you have to believe. And when you confess that to the Lord and you surrender that to him, he invites you into his kingdom. And all those sins that were on your record, he takes the payment Jesus already, already put in the bank and he applies that to your account. Not because of what you did, but because of what Jesus did. And now you come into God's kingdom. And you get to enjoy all of the blessings and the benefits and the wisdom and the fences, and the guardrails, and the favor of being his citizen. And you get to hop into the rescue boat with the rest of us and go tell the rest of the world and your friends, come on inside. There's room for you. Come on inside. That's a message of Jesus to you today, friend. Come on inside. There's room for you. Yes, Pastor Phil, I'm ready to take that step. All right, here's a prayer. I want you to pray with me right now, right wherever you are. Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I have failed. I've rebelled against you. I've been fighting against you for control of my life. And I'm laying down my fight today. I am surrendering. I'm waving 
my proverbial white flag today. Because I do believe in you. I believe you're God's son, and I believe the story of the gospel. That Jesus, you really lived the life I was supposed to live, but I failed, and you succeeded. You really, truly did put your neck on the chopping block and pushed mine out of the way. You died the death I deserve to die. But you did it in my place as my substitute. And I do believe the report of history and of hundreds of eyewitnesses that have been preserved for me today. I do believe you rose from the dead. And that because of that, I have hope that I too can be raised to life through your life living inside of me, Jesus. I put my faith in you. I turn away from my life of autonomy and sin. And I surrender to your kingship as a citizen of your kingdom. I choose to follow you. You are the Lord. You are the king. I'm acknowledging that with my life now. Will you teach me and lead me and guide me to how I can be an accurate echo, the best possible image and representation of you, so that you can use my life as an arrow that points people to truth and to your kingdom. Heavenly Father, that's the prayer of all of us today. As a Christian, as someone who's already in your kingdom, I lay myself down to you again today. And I ask you, please put a spark of power from your gospel next to the the campfire of my heart that I burn even more confident and more bold and more at peace and more purposeful and meaningful with even more of a solid and secure identity and who I am in you as a result of knowing your gospel. Something that I look into and that looks into me, a story that I ask questions of and now I ask questions of us. Lord, let, let the facts, the stubborn historical facts of the true story of who you are, where we came from, what went wrong, what you've done about it. Let it drive our life so that there's a new enthusiasm and urgency in this fifth scene that we're living in to tell your truth and the pathway to heaven to to everybody in our circle of friends that we leave here even more equipped and enthused about the story we have to tell than we did when we came in today. We believe this is a season where you're getting ready to make a harvest of souls, not of money, not of resources, but of souls. And at Echo, we say we will always make room for you to bring increase in the souls that want to come into your kingdom. Lord, prepare us to, to disciple and move people forward as they begin to say yes, 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 yes to you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Echo Community Church podcast. If today's message impacted you or you want to talk about one of the topics we discussed today, email us at info at echochurchmd.com. We would love to connect with you online. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube by searching our church name, Echo Community Church. Send a message or leave a comment to at Echo Community Church and let's continue the conversation. And if you live locally in Baltimore County, Maryland, we invite you to our Sunday worship experience. You can find out more on our website at echochurchonline.com.